Millions of frontline workers keep our economy running and are provided with the latest technology to do their jobs. But digital adoption, especially by frontline workers, is really hard. This is Frontline Innovators. We explore how to overcome challenges and achieve success when we empower our essential workers. I'm Justin Lake. And I'm Gene Signorini. Together, we speak with experts who are leading the way and driving digital transformation to the front line. This podcast is sponsored by Skillful on a mission to help frontline workers learn and use the technology needed to succeed in their jobs. Welcome to the Frontline Innovators Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Lake, and I'm excited for today's episode. Our guest today is an independent change management consultant who recently completed a two-year engagement with a global self-care and pharmaceutical product manufacturing company. He has also led OCM initiatives for global commercial furniture and interiors manufacturer and a regional financial services organization. Please welcome to the show, Roland Prevo. Hello, Roland. Hello. Welcome and thank you. Good morning, and thank you so much for being on the show today. I want to start off as we do with every episode and ask you what you think is the biggest challenge facing the deskless frontline workforce today. I think probably the biggest challenge facing that deskless frontline group today is that the pace of change has been rapidly accelerated in the last couple of years due primarily to the pandemic. And so what we have had is some changes that were starting to take hold in the way that people did their jobs. And then the pandemic drastically accelerated them. And so change is always hard, but when you've got forces from outside trying to push you even faster than you were already moving, that can make a difficult situation even more difficult. Yeah. I think the pandemic has had a disproportionate impact on the men and women on the front lines. We've talked about this on the show a number of times, and I, I don't think that we can talk about it really too much in that I, I know everybody globally has been impacted by the pandemic, but many of us were able to shift our, our work and family lifestyles to work from home, work from our living room, you know, work from our kitchen and, and other conveniences that were afforded to us. But many of the men and women on the front lines uh, didn't have those luxuries and had to go back to work and, and work in the same setting that they were working in before. So as you said, the, the pace of change created by that has really accelerated over the last couple of years. And I, so I think it's, it's made that burden even more challenging for them. Yes, I think it definitely has. Um, and you can see it in the things that have changed and what we sometimes call the great resignation. People have been placed in situations where they have to do their jobs, but they're doing them a little bit differently than they had. And I don't mean that they're working from their home. I mean, they're working with their clients, but they've got other outside forces. Maybe they have to wear a mask, maybe something else has changed, but it's put some shifts that they weren't expecting in how they have to do their jobs to be effective, particularly if they're in vendor-facing or customer-facing types of roles, where they're not able to simply work from their quote-unquote home office. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, I, and it's interesting when you talk about the, uh, the great resignation, I I've been reading up on this a little bit because I'm still trying to figure out where everybody is. It sounds like there's been a lot more resignations than there has been hiring. I, I know that there's been some movement in the workforce and people have decided to uproot their career and, and pursue new things that the gap that I still can't quite figure out in my head is uh, where all the people have gone, because it seems like there are a lot of industries that are talking about, you know, hundreds or thousands of openings 
Um, but it, it just seems like it, if everybody's changing, like it, it should be like, you know, musical chairs at some point when the music stops, everybody should fall back into, <laughs> into a seat. So yes. uh, I haven't quite figured that out yet. I don't know if you have any insights to share with me and our audience about, you know, where all those folks are right now. It's funny that you mentioned that because I have asked myself that same question. So often you hear the media report on job losses, people who've left positions, quit. But we don't hear about the corresponding new jobs created or people being hired, getting higher numbers. Exactly. And obviously those folks are going somewhere. So it's not as if people who needed a job before suddenly don't need a job and they've just decided to stop working. That's not what's happening. Yeah. Um, what seems to be the case is that the way that we measure our um, Bureau of Labor Statistics numbers, you're seeing that other side of the equation in that very low employment, excuse me, very low unemployment rate. Right. So we're down now well below 5%. And when you get down to numbers that small, sometimes it can be a little difficult to measure. So although it doesn't get recorded as a one-to-one -one kind of thing, or as I've said before, you know, new hires versus uh, people who've left positions, I think that's what we're probably seeing. Some people are in fact retiring, and that yep. does have an impact on it. So that is not something to be overlooked. Uh, but yeah, it's, yeah. it's an odd kind of situation to keep talking about people leaving jobs. Yeah, That's we've been talking about the aging. Yeah, we've been talking about the aging of the workforce, you know, for, for years. And it just seems, I, I do think you're right on that part that, um, especially in a lot of frontline roles where um, many people may have been staying in those jobs, you know, deep into their 50s or early 60s. And the pandemic may have been, you know, the final straw for them to say, okay, I'm, I'm going to take that pension and get out of here. And um, I certainly can't say that I blame them, but that, that I can imagine that that would accelerate the reduction in size of the workforce. And um, so to, to use my maybe bad example on the, the musical chairs, you know, when the music turns off, there are fewer people than there are chairs left, right? Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your background. Um, I, I know you're an independent consultant now. I know you haven't always been an independent consultant. So um, walk us through the, the journey of, of how you ended up in uh, the career of OCM. It, it seems to me that most people uh, didn't necessarily grow up thinking that they were going to become a change management professional. Uh, that there, it seems to be pretty consistent. There were some uh, moments throughout the, the careers of, of many OCM pros that uh, caused them to, to pursue this as a career and, and a passion. So I'd like to hear that story from you. Sure. Um, like many people in the HR space, human capital, I worked for many years in training and development. And I did a lot of different things in training and development, uh, working with clients, developing training programs, um, doing training with trainer activities, the whole spectrum of what we typically think of as teaching people knowledge and skills and all the things that have to happen in order for them to be able to do something that they haven't previously done. That's what training and development is. And so I did that for many years in the banking industry. And then I moved into a manufacturing industry and I was still in really a training and development role. Um, and in that position, I began to work much more toward what we really now think of as change management and OCM. It was during my time in contract furniture manufacturing that I gained my CROSI certification. And I realized that a lot of the things that we were doing that were part of training and development really were actually part of change management. We just didn't know it because the field was so young at that time. That's not what we called it. 
But in fact, those things that we did that had to do with getting people comfortable with not necessarily doing what they've done before, getting them comfortable and being able to develop their confidence in doing something different, all of those kinds of things that are designed to help overcome resistance and make people more ready to change and ready to be more comfortable doing something different. All of those things are really core to what we think of as modern change management. So I basically worked my career from training and development and moved it into a, a change management focus because training and development is definitely part of OCM, part of change management. So that's what I've been doing uh, for a number of years and really spending the last seven to eight years focusing more on what I would call change management versus training and development. Can you share with me and our audience where you kind of put the line between training versus OCM? I, I understand training is a part of OCM. I'd like to hear mm -hmm. you kind of give us your take on where that division is between the, the two functions. I would say that I've got a pretty traditional um, outlook on that. And basically, the change management has to do with getting people ready to apply new skills. So if we think about the idea of first, when you decide to do something, you will there'll be an awareness to what you need to do and what you want to be different. And there's going to be obviously some desire. You're going to want to have something be different. So that's where the desire piece comes in. So that's good from the standpoint of awareness and interest and willingness. But it doesn't really get you to where you want to be in terms of readiness because it doesn't necessarily give you all of the knowledge that you need to perform differently in the future to do something different. And it also doesn't give you the ability. So in my mind, the change management focus is a little bit more on understanding what needs to change, why something needs to change. And the training and development focus is much more on what it is that changes from a, from a knowledge perspective and then how to do something differently, which is really where the ability comes in. And so it's that distinction between the awareness and the willingness, and then the knowledge and the ability. The knowledge and ability is the training and development, and the awareness and the willingness is much more what we think of as the beginning of change management. So I, I think you might've just been um, giving us a little bit of detail from ADCAR methodology from ProSci, which I, I now, thanks to this podcast and all the great guests I've had before, uh, mm -hmm. I can start to, to pick up on some of those things. You yes. used a word that I, I actually found fascinating. It's a simple, subtle change to the desire phase. You talked about interest and the more important word was willingness. Yes. And that, that hit home for me because I've struggled as I've listened to OCM professionals talk about that desire phase. I've been admittedly a bit skeptical that we can always bring people around to genuinely have a desire to take on this change. And I, I do think maybe I'm just splitting hairs here, but I think there is a, an important distinction between a desire where I actually crave or want something to happen versus the word you used, which I think I now prefer, which is a willingness to accept this change. That probably wasn't an accident that you used that word. Talk me through that a little bit. Sure. No, that is extremely important. And I think there was um, a sports figure who used to say, you gotta wanna, and it's that you have to want to do something. Think about people who've been in careers where they have a set of skills that they either acquired or do by natural, maybe it's talent, and they're very good at this thing, but they don't necessarily enjoy doing it. Mm -hmm. You can be good at doing something that we don't necessarily enjoy doing, 
if you don't enjoy doing it, you're probably going to not be as willing to do it as you would if you enjoyed it. And so that's where the willingness factor comes in. I often think of it just in terms of willingness and ability. You may have the ability to do something, but how much do you want to, or how willing are you to do that? And both of those things need to be present to have a really successful um, transition. Yeah. I, I guess I've always listened to folks talk about desire as if we can bring everybody around to essentially want the future state more than they want the current state. And th that's the part I think I've been maybe a little bit skeptical about. I, I know all of us are, are reluctant to change. And I do think sometimes, you know, we, we can bring, particularly in, in technology, we can bring new technology to the men and women on the front lines and help them understand what's in it for them and what some of the benefits are going to be and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, at least right now, they may be thinking, you know what, that's all great. That sounds wonderful, but I'd still really rather stick with what I know, what I'm comfortable with, what I've been using for the last five years, right? Um, I think, you know, as, as change teams implement some of the communication and, and are trying to bring folks along with the desire, it, it does seem very much more likely that we could bring them to a state of willingness rather than to actually crave this, this new change. And, and maybe that's a concession that we need to, to make sometimes to say, how can we make this? Maybe they're not going to jump through hoops of fire because they're so excited about this change, but at least bring them on board to a state where they're willing to accept that this is probably going to happen, whether they want it or not. Let's find that the best things about this, look for the silver lining and, and kind of bring them on as a willing participant. That is actually a really good point. And what it brought to my mind, if you're saying that, is the idea that we sometimes don't speak about out loud, maybe we speak of it in our heads, but it's the idea that when we're presented with a challenge or when our manager asks us to do something, we might initially be very reluctant and very resistant, but sometimes we have to ask ourselves, is this a hill I want to die on? Is this something that's really negotiable? And sometimes some things in our work lives are non-negotiable. We can't necessarily negotiate it away. It becomes a part of what we need to do that we may be less willing to do because we don't enjoy it as much, but it may be something that's so important to what the work consists of that we need to do it. And we just need to accept that, or in some cases, not accept that. Right. But it's that idea of what is or is not negotiable that I think sometimes people can get themselves into, kind of into knots with. Yeah. Something maybe negotiable that really isn't. Yeah, I think that's a, a really good way to, to look at it. So if we were to invite a few of the men and women from the front lines into the podcast mm -hmm. and ask them the question that we asked you at the top of the, the conversation about the biggest challenge facing deskless frontline workforce. You, you mentioned the pace of change. What do you think they would say if we asked them the same question? I think it probably, what people, particularly those, in those frontline positions are dealing with is the things that they can't predict and the things that they can't necessarily know. And so it's not necessarily even the pace of change, but it's the volume or the breadth of change. There are so many things that might be changing in today's how people get work done, but that may be where the bigger challenge comes from. They don't know what the next change is going to be. Just when they're starting to get comfortable with something that had been different, all of a sudden they're um, dealing with some new change that they haven't forecast. Yeah. The, the breadth of change, it, it's, it's certainly just like the, the, the volume and the, the number of changes that they're experiencing right now. I can see that being very frustrating. I, 
I, I imagine that the pace of change is probably impacting them also. Um, just in, in terms of um, how fast they're being asked to adopt. They're not being given a very long on-ramp in, in certain circumstances, at least what, what I've witnessed uh, you know, with some of our clients. And uh, I know that can add a whole lot of pressure to you know, the, just the, the feeling of frustration and stress that they're under as a result of all that change. You take the complexity and then you add speed to it. It takes a difficult situation and just makes it even more challenging. Yeah. So we, we started off, you know, obviously the pandemic is something that um, the show isn't necessarily about the pandemic, but when we talk about change and digital transformation, it's hard to talk about those things without, you know, mentioning the pandemic. Even before 2020, there was a lot of talk about the future of work and the evolution of, of different roles. How do you think the, just the, the future of frontline work will be impacted by all that we've experienced in the last couple of years. Do you think some of these changes are going to stay permanent? Do you think so, things will kind of ease back into the way that they were pre-pandemic? What are your thoughts on that? I think it probably depends in part on the industry because for some industries, they found making that pivot to a workforce that is more often remote rather than being someone who's in your physical space, um, relatively easy. So for some fields of business, it's pretty easy to do that. But for others, where you're providing service directly to the customer, directly on site, that may be in the customer's home or at the customer's business, for those kinds of things, you can't necessarily go, um, you can't go all new. Certain things you just simply can't do remotely. Uh, there's no such thing as remote plumbing. There's no right. such thing as remote carpentry. There's no such thing as many other kinds of um, manufacturing and other kinds of businesses you simply can't do remotely. So while we can make use of some of the new technologies for parts of the process, and I think that's where we'll see the technologies quote unquote stick, maybe parts of the process, but certain parts of the process are going to have to go back to the way that they've always been delivered because there really is no other way to do that. We found new ways to do some things, but you can't find a new way to do absolutely everything. That's just not practical. Yeah. I think... Um... I, I do think you're right. There are certain roles, like you mentioned, some of them plumbing and, and carpentry, some things that are just always going to have to happen on site. You can't, you know, entirely repair an elevator remotely, although with, you know, uh, internet of things, there are certainly more sensors that can be, uh, you know, monitored remotely and things like that. So definitely we've seen that transition even pre pandemic. And I uh, suspect that some of those initiatives have been accelerated in part by, you know, trying to not put people out on site if we can help it. But at the end of the day, if you need to change the, the pulleys on a machine, you're going to need to be there to change the pulleys on a machine. And, uh, you know, that stuff's not going to change for a while. So, so we'll go back as soon as Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So as you think about all of the digital transformation initiatives that you've been a part of, and, and obviously we're, we're super focused here uh, on this show, you know, with those related to frontline workers, really like to just kind of get into you sharing some of, of your lessons learned and, and wisdom over the years about what you've seen that has been particularly successful. Um, one of the things that's come up a lot on the show lately, and I'd love to hear your take on this too, is just how you know important you, you've already mentioned uh, the A and ADCAR awareness phase and, and helping to create desire or as we've accepted here on this show, willingness to, to change. Um, what have you found that's been effective in communicating uh, the upcoming changes to, particularly with the men and women on the front lines? Anything uh, kind of stand out there, a, a story that you can share with us about something that's worked particularly well? Well, some of them 
some of the things that I would say are things you really need to do that the essentials relate to making sure that you spend enough time telling people, quote unquote, upfront, what it is that's going to be different and why. That is extraordinarily important because if someone doesn't understand why they're being asked to do something, then they're going to be far less willing to do it. And oftentimes leaders have been living with the situation longer than the people they're communicating with or the teams they're leading. So maybe they were aware much longer than their team was. So they need to make their team members aware of what's going to be happening. And they do need to repeat those messages multiple times for it all to get through. Because none of us understands everything completely the first and only time that we hear it. So repeating the message and repeating the information over and over again is extremely helpful. Um, that, is, that is an essential thing. You've got to deliver the message more than one way and multiple times. The other thing that's really helpful, I found in my experience, is the concept of baby steps. And it's almost become a little bit of a cliche, but the fact is that you do have to kind of walk before you can run and you have to crawl before you can walk. And when we think about readiness and the part that it plays in terms of change management and an organization being able to function at a level, it's different than the level it has been functioning in. You can't move to the next level until you're ready. And you get ready by doing the things that you need to do beforehand. So it's that idea. You have to become a good crawler before you can become a good walker. You have to become a competent walking before you can run. And so understanding that people will need some time to adjust, people will need some time to figure out what their level of acceptance of the new reality is going to be. That's part of it. They need some time for that. And then they also need time to practice some foundational activities that will give them the walking steps before they can be ready to run. When somebody does something new for the first time, they're not going to do it successfully right off the bat. That needs to be understood and expected. Oftentimes, what we see in um, change initiatives is that after something gets fully implemented, we see a, a reduction in productivity or an increase in an error rate, for example. And that is completely normal, and you just have to live through that period of time because then as people become more comfortable, then they will um, find, you will find that their skill increases, their speed increases, their ability increases, and the things that led to that dip in effectiveness or quality resolve themselves, they go away, but it does take a certain amount of time for that to happen. I have found cases where there have been people who first thought they were not able to make a transition and they had actually been thinking that they needed to find a new job, to make some kind of a career change because they didn't think they were going to be able to cope with what was happening. But we found that by working with them correctly and using an appropriate and time understanding way of doing change management, we were able to get them to be able to perform successfully. And in many cases, they frankly surprised themselves because they didn't give up. They demonstrated some persistence and some resilience. And by not giving up and not letting the new situation you know, beat them, they were able to be successful and to succeed more than they thought they would. So it does yeah. take time, it does take patience, and it does take um, building skills over time from the low-level skills to the higher-level skills. There's a few things that you said there that are really um, kind of striking a chord with me. The, the first is that the leaders have been working with the change longer. So that is something that I think is uh, way underestimated in the impact that it has. 
And I, I think the, the folks that have been involved in whatever transformation initiative is, is underway um, from kind of a project team standpoint have been involved in it for many months and sometimes many years. They were there at the formation of that uh, you know, transformational uh, concept and what potential solutions could be considered. And they may have been involved in, in looking at different vendors and different approaches and all of these other things that have been happening for many years. And then all of a sudden this change comes down to affect the men and women on the front lines. And it's like the rug getting pulled out from them. Right. So I am particularly sensitive to what you talked about, because I think it, it seems so many things about the initiative will then seem obvious to the teams that were there to implement it. And they take for granted their level of knowledge about the change and the impact that it's going to have and may not communicate completely or, as often or as early as they should. And I think that's a really important point that you just bring and brought up that, and, and I think repeating the messages, like we we've got it. We had a long time, you know, building the solution and, and contemplating the solution. We had a long time. The process has changed. We don't necessarily need to give the men and women on the front lines the same amount of time, but we need to give them more than we probably normally plan for. Yes. So often we think that if we tell them something, they'll simply be able to adapt and, Adaptation takes longer than that. Um, and yes, yeah. if you've had more time to get used to an idea, it might just be a few weeks, but that few weeks can make an enormous difference in somebody else's ability. And frankly, particularly, as we said before, their willingness. They yeah. would be a lot more willing to make the change and put forth the effort um, if they feel a lot more comfortable in understanding about what it is that's going to happen and why. Why do you think this is an issue? Why do you think we hold back? information do you think it's a, an oversight or do you think it's uh, intentionally held back for a reason that maybe seems justifiable what are your thoughts on that sometimes some organizations will decide to hold it back and they do that because they don't necessarily want certain topics that might be uncomfortable to come up there may be things about the current operation that are going to be changed as part of a, a new future design but there may frankly be some things that managers or leaders may feel, boy, I wish we could change this, but maybe there isn't a way to do it. And if they start talking about that and those possibilities with their frontline employees or with groups of employees, then it might kind of open that can of worms, that proverbial can of worms about, well, if we're going to change this and this, why don't we change the way we do that? And the managers and leaders may be uncomfortable about changing that, or maybe changing that truly isn't practical. But if you start talking about it with people, the more you start talking about it, the more people will think about the possibilities. And that's where it can get uncomfortable because you might be asked to change something that you may not be either ready or willing or able to change, at least not at that time. Yeah. So I think that's the reason we tend not to talk about it so much. We'd rather get on with doing what we know. Well, let's just roll up our sleeves and do what we need to do. And uh, so that's why people tend to move toward the action rather than the um, discussion and the analysis. Yeah, I think you raised another point that may be at the root of some of those concerns, which is the productivity hit that can happen as that change is taking place. And I, I wonder if some stakeholders, some leaders in the organization fear the productivity hit just because of the communication. You think there's a chance that that's driving some of that behavior? Yes, because as soon as they start talking about something before it's even happened, they know that that's going to affect people. And 
it may cause people to slow down or in some ways change what they're doing because they know what they're doing is going to change. And so it again opens up the possibilities. And it might perhaps cause people to start trying things on their own, looking for workarounds. People can get very creative. Yeah. And so if management raises the subject of something that's going to be different in the future before they have all of the hows worked out, it can cause employees to sometimes take some actions that may in fact reduce productivity. So that is one of the reasons that some people would say, let's just not say anything about this at all until we have all of the I's dotted and the T's crossed and we know exactly how this is going to go. Then we can tell them how we want them to do this and then they'll just do what we ask them to do yeah. and then everything will be great. It doesn't always work out like that, but sometimes that thinking drives the actions of leaders. Yeah, I could see that meeting happening in a conference room somewhere. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Let's not talk about it until it's ready. Let's not talk about it until we're ready to talk about it. Yeah. And, and I, I guess it, it does have to be deliberate. And so I, I think it's appropriate to say we we ought to spend some time as as you know, all the stakeholders um and, and the project teams that are being pulled together to implement this change we ought to be deliberate about that communication for sure. So I, I definitely think that doing it early, but haphazardly is also not good, right? So it's not just about communicating early, but it is about thinking of, you know, what is, you know, and I've, I've learned from many of our guests about empathy mapping and things like that. What are the things that these folks might be thinking about when they learn of this change and, and just really be very deliberate about that. But I, I think it's certainly worth considering for most companies I've come across to really move that process earlier up so that they can start that the, the folks most affected by the change can start to acclimate to the idea of it and, and really come around over time. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, it always will take more communication than you think it's going to take. Yeah. Yeah. I had a guest uh, on the show just last week who talked about uh, even including signs in the bathroom, which is one of my favorite. Uh... Yes. It's a great strategy. <laughs> it is a terrific strategy. I've used it numerous times. Yeah. It's, I thought that was a great place to send to frankly deliver messages for people. It, it made me laugh out loud, but I was like, actually, that may be one of the best ideas. It's it's a very low tech but high effective mm -hmm. uh, approach, right? We're we're all going to visit the room at some point, so why not uh, use it as a place to communicate? I thought that was fantastic. Yeah. So you, you mentioned something else, Roland, about uh, right after productivity, you talked about quality, and I'd like to hear your take on that because I think. That, this is something, and, and I think it's legitimate, a legitimate concern about reduction in productivity and reduction in quality um, of, of the output of the men and women on the front lines. And I think one of the other things that makes that worker profile different than maybe those of us that are in kind of what we would often describe as knowledge worker roles is that the productivity for knowledge workers isn't measured in the same way or to the same degree that frontline workers are measured. There's a very transactional nature of many frontline worker roles. How many customers did they see today? How many work orders did they process? How many parts did they sell or uh, install, right? So there's, there's a lot more like transactional level measurement. And so when we're implementing change, a 10% impact to the performance of the men and women in the front line is, can be measured, number one, fairly easily in most cases. And it's really felt throughout the organization. I'm curious to hear, you know, how you feel um, we can be doing a better job to minimize that impact, because I, I do think that that affects 
a lot of the business leadership when they may be pushing for the change, they may be embracing the digital transformation, but they are legitimately nervous that it's going to have an impact on productivity. How do you, as a change management leader, help them deal with that? Number one, just accept that there's going to be some loss in productivity, but also try to minimize you know, the depth of that valley. I think one of the trickiest things to do, and it can definitely be difficult. If you're in an area, in an industry, perhaps, or a job or a function that doesn't have those easily quantifiable kinds of things, can't count widgets, you can't count these things, you can maybe always count it. These are the things that we look at as our performance metrics, our APIs, our key performance indicators. Um, if you are in an area where you don't have those things, it really takes, there's a benefit to be had at the beginning of a project. Think about how you do want to measure those things and you may have to invent some new metrics. Oftentimes, I've worked with clients and I've said to them, so how will we know if this is successful? What are we going to look at to know if what we've accomplished is what we set out to do? And if it's not something that's easily quantifiable, I've had people just kind of stare at me and say, I don't know. And when I ask, how do you do it today? The question might be, well, we really, the answer might be, well, we really don't. Okay, well, then let's think about how we can do that. Maybe we have to start counting something or paying attention to something that we don't currently pay attention to. Maybe we've never thought about it or never looked at it. But if you look at the process, and oftentimes process mapping is a really helpful way to get this done, figure out where are the transactions, what is the output of what someone does that becomes an input to someone else? Is there a way that you can measure that somehow that will give you something that you can track? so that you can say, we typically have X number of some things, try to get it to that basic level of bean counting, so to speak, but try to get it to that level, try to figure out something that you can count. As I said, you might have to make something up, you might have to measure something that you've never measured before, but try to figure those things out at the beginning so that you can keep track of them all the way through the process so that you'll know what your baseline figure is, and you'll know if you're doing better or worse, the closer you get to when you're fully implemented and then watch what happens after you've implemented. So yeah. oftentimes it's, it's really well down to figuring out whatever you can implement. And that does take some time and effort and creativity. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. What, what are any, any experiences come to mind where maybe uh, the change that you were implementing didn't go quite as, as planned and, and any lessons learned from that? I would say there was an instance that I'm thinking of right now where we had a very deep organization with a lot of levels, so several levels of management, several levels of middle management, and getting the messaging from the top level all the way down through the organization was something that took more effort than we originally thought it was going to. What we discovered was that when we were doing our change readiness surveys, we found that the information was going down to a certain level and then it basically stopped. There was a particular level of management that just because of what they were accustomed to doing, they weren't accustomed to sharing certain information with their employees. And so the information didn't go any further. And when you have managers of managers who are not sharing information with their managers, then that can really pose a problem because then you have a whole group of end users who are not getting the information, a whole group of individual contributors who aren't getting the message. So Fortunately, because we knew we wanted to know how we were doing, we discovered 
earlier rather than later that the message wasn't getting through, that it was stopping. And so then we had to do some roundtable discussion sessions with the folks who we knew were basically preventing the information from flowing, enabling them to communicate what they needed to. And we really were able to explain to them why it was really very important that they do that, that they deliver that message, even though it was completely different than something we've ever had to do. And once we did that communication and raised that awareness um, and showed them how they could do it, then we had much better results. But if we hadn't fixed that, if we hadn't done that course correction, then we would have really been in trouble um, in the latter third or so of the process because we would have had a whole group of people who just simply didn't get a lot of information. Yeah. So my first question is, how did you uncover that there was even a communication gap or dead ends happening? Yeah, we do what's pretty common in the industry and change management. We certainly well recommended, and that's a, a change management or change readiness survey process where you have a small group of questions that you ask all the members in your audience, and you can do that using an electronic survey method. You can use it in survey different ways. But the point is that you ask your audience a key set of questions that include things like how their manager is communicating with them, what's their level of comfort with understanding what's going to be different, some other key kinds of questions. And when you ask the right questions, then you do that repeatedly over time in a series of surveys. So you just keep asking the same questions repeatedly every month, for example. Monthly is often a good cycle for a change readiness survey. And then you can see from your results if the results that are coming from one particular group don't look like the others, then you clearly got something going on that you need to address. That is something that a lot of organizations don't do as part of their change management. And without that feedback loop, you're not going to know things that you need to know. So I really put a great deal of emphasis on doing that kind of change readiness survey activity to make sure you understand where your audience is or isn't. That's recommend, is that survey a, uh, a sample of the population or is it done with everybody? What's your recommendation there? When you have a large population, the method I've used before is to do a survey sample and then to rotate that around so that you're not hitting 100% of the audience all the time. Sampling okay. is a very good method to get a read on enough of the population to spot something if something needs to be yeah, yeah. All right, so keep, keep in mind, I'm not a trained change management professional. I'm just a technology guy that loves talking to change management professionals because I've learned so much from folks like you. So I, can you share, this may sound like a silly question to some folks in the audience and maybe for me to you, but I'd like to hear like, what are some of the actual questions that you would ask? Can you give me an example or two of how you would put a question in a survey to elicit a, a, a response that is measurable and, you know, I guess as objective as it can be, Help me understand what that survey process is like a little bit. Usually, the best kinds of questions for that are not yes or no, because what you want to do is you want to get a question that is going to appear on a scale. So if you provide a statement like, my manager informs me of what's happening during the next week consistently and reliably, then you ask the person to agree with that. And you either strongly agree, you agree, you disagree, or you strongly disagree. And you ask people how much do they agree with that statement that their manager informs them on a weekly basis of what's going on the next coming week, you're going to get some data that's very specific as to whether or not 
managers are doing an effective job of communicating with their employees. That's an example of how to build a question. And if you ask questions around comfort, I feel comfortable doing X task, or I feel comfortable doing the business processes that I need to complete in any given day, you might say the question could be phrased as I feel extremely comfortable. Mm-hmm. So that becomes your benchmark. And then you ask people to agree or disagree. Well, do I feel extremely comfortable? No. If I really do feel extremely comfortable, I may strongly agree with that statement. But if I don't feel so comfortable, then I may disagree with it or even strongly disagree with it. Those kinds of questions where you literally ask people what they think and about how they are feeling about something in a way that allows them to give you a scaled answer will usually give you all the information you need to quickly identify when something is or isn't going the way you want it to. So yeah. those are the kind of the basics of question yeah, we've had some experiences in in our business where we've had users reach out to us asking for some help, and there's been some fear. Like we've had people call into our office to and not give us their name, or they hit our website anonymously and are asking for some support because they don't want their employer to know that they needed some additional help. Those experiences have been so impactful to me as I think about somebody being in a job and reaching out to essentially a vendor partner that they knew about from in the company and they're coming to us asking for help, which is fine. We're happy to help. But the fact that they have some concerns about their employer finding out that they needed help has been, I think, profoundly insightful into kind of the psyche of some of the men and women on the front lines. And so I as I'm thinking about the survey process, I wonder if there's maybe an increased margin of error on this in that if we ask somebody, hey, are you comfortable with the the things that we've been communicating and telling you about with this change? Might some people say, yes, I'm comfortable, even though they're really not because they don't want to share that they're uncomfortable, that they don't understand something, that they're fearful because fearful of the change because they also have some anxiety of, of what the repercussions of that honesty would be. That is something that we have had to have conversations with clients about on more than one occasion, because as soon as you open up the topic of, Hey, we want to do a change readiness survey of your audience and make sure that we understand how people are feeling about this and what their levels of comfort and their levels of confidence are, as well as their levels of understanding. Um, that can often make people extremely uncomfortable. And oftentimes people will think, well, they'll just, you know, they'll just not necessarily tell us the truth or they'll tell us what they think we want to hear. And what's really interesting is that when people don't have to identify themselves in ways that could lead to potential retaliation, you do the survey in a way that is anonymous, then you're able to figure out, um, you're able to ask questions in a way that gets truthful answers from people. And as long as people feel comfortable to speak openly and candidly, then if it's on a survey and they're not being asked to provide any specifically identifying information, they're usually going to tell you the truth more often than not. So we yeah. certainly found that to be the case whenever we've done these kinds of surveys. And it yeah. certainly helps the culture because it makes everybody a little bit more honest 
and it makes everybody a little bit more comfortable with the idea of being honest instead of simply saying what you want, or saying what you think someone wants to do. So. Yeah, this has come up on the show a lot, this idea of um, transparency and trust and culture. And I, I can imagine that we could ask the same questions to people that have basically the same job in all other variables being essentially equal, but in two different cultural environments, one where there's a great level of trust and one where there's not. And I think we'd probably see very different answers and I bet we'd see very different uh, success, you know, on, on the change initiatives. And it's, it's just something I've noticed it with some of our client engagements. I can see the differences from the outside looking in some of those uh, cultural uh, conditions inside the organization are, uh, are very different. And the way that they are able to communicate with their employees is, is affected by that because there may be some skepticism on the employee, on the part of the, the workers themselves. And maybe they've been through some things in the past where they feel like they've been misled. So the trust levels are very low. And I can imagine that that's going to, you know, affect their receptivity to, you know, some of the change that's coming down the pipe. How you position and how you set people up for a survey experience like that, especially if the organization typically hasn't done it, is a step that you really do have to take. You have to prepare people for being asked some questions that they may never have been asked before. Maybe they've never done this kind of a survey process. So you do have to communicate about that up front. If you just jump into it and you don't give people the right kind of preparation, don't give them the right kind of information about what's going to happen, then your results can be inaccurate. But if you take the time to let people know this is why we're doing it and we're honest and sincere and you can trust us when we tell you this, then you're much more likely to get results that are really meaningful. And that's usually what's happened in my experience. The results are far, uh, the benefits of doing such an exercise have far outweighed the, uh, the minuses. Yeah. Well, as often happens, on, on these conversations, I've, I've gotten some ideas for, for my day job, for our product, um, just of things that we, we can be using our platform for to help facilitate, you know, some of the improved communication uh, with the men and women on the front lines. Because one of the things that we've seen that's different with a lot of the clients that we work with is that uh, they don't have the same communication methods in place with frontline workers that we might have with knowledge workers. So if you're rolling out a change to SAP and adding a new module for your accounting department, uh, the primary method is going to be, you know, communicating in the office and via email and through teams and, and other, what I would say are more traditional communication methods. And a lot of that stuff goes out the window when we're talking about change with, with men and women on the front line. So we really just need to rethink how we handle those things to make sure that we're, uh, you know, communicating effectively. The show is, uh, you know, called Frontline Innovators. And so when, when I think of innovation, I think uh, about technology. And I'm curious if there are tools that you use, not the underlying technology change that you're implementing, but if there are technology tools that you use as a change leader. Are there anything, and it, I guess it could be as simple as a spreadsheet template that you have or other PowerPoint frameworks and things like that all the way up to, is there any software that you use specifically that helps you facilitate change in the projects that you've been a part of? I found that I always use certain tools because I'm always going to want to produce certain deliverables when I'm working on an initiative. And frankly, um, Excel spreadsheets and Microsoft Word documents and some of them PowerPoint files 
uh, slide decks, those things are all still very good tools of the trade because you often need to capture the data, you need to be able to present it to somebody, and maybe it is, for example, a change impact analysis. So you need a table that lays out your audiences, and you need a way of showing the change impacts where you can compare uh, one set against another, you can compare one group's responses to another, you can show how the changes are going to impact. You need to be able to communicate that information effectively, and things like spreadsheets and um, PowerPoint presentations are very effective for being able to do that. Um, online survey tools can be very helpful for doing surveys with people, and it might be a Google form, it might be something with SurveyMonkey, it might be any number of other survey tools that are out there. But that can be often a way of getting uh, information from people that you wouldn't necessarily um, be using those tools with. Another method that works really well, which I have used before, is the sampling. If you people who don't necessarily always have routine access to a computer, one of the things you can do is send a person out with an iPad that has your survey on it, do very brief interviews, because you're only asking two to five questions at a shot. So you talk to um, you talk to Susan and you ask Susan your five questions, you record her answers, and then you move on to the next person. All of that information gets stored in the um, cloud because you're capturing it on an iPad. Yep. And that method works really well for getting information from people who don't necessarily have a way that they can send it to you from themselves. Yeah. It's another, it's a fantastic example of sometimes just keeping it simple uh, is, is best. Right. Yeah. And for the men and women on the front lines uh, you're right. Like getting them to check their email, click the link, log into something. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, they may only check their email if they even have corporate email once a week, you know, or just certainly less frequently than those of us that are kind of spending a lot of time at a desk. And so some of those traditional methods are just not going to be effective. Your example is a, is a perfect one that I think uh, I'll certainly recommend to, to my clients that I, that they think about doing something like that. And, and I'm sure folks in our audience here uh, will, will take that idea and, and put it to use as well. I think that's a great one. Yeah. So we're kind of, uh, believe it or not, we're already up at the, the end of our time here. Um, I, I'd like to wrap up and ask you kind of the final question that is what contribution through a, a change initiative are you most proud of? I would say the one that I still come back to that is um, a source of pride is that specific instance where I did have an employee, and I'm thinking about one in particular, who really did believe that she was going to have to find a new job and there was just no way she was going to be able to learn how to use SAP to do what she did before. And this was, this was someone who truly did believe that she was not going to be able to uh, be successful. And one of the things that we did was we actually recorded a video that took real life testimony from the members of the employee population throughout the course of the experience. And we captured a lot of video of people who did interviews, captured their responses. And one of the most satisfying pieces of, uh, of uh, videotape that we had was where this woman explained that she felt that she was going to have to find a new job and she realized that she could actually do this and she convinced herself and proved to herself that she was able to be successful and she didn't have to disrupt her life. And it was just a very heartwarming moment. And it's nice to remember that, that when we're talking about change management, we're talking about oftentimes not just the technology of the system, but the people. And it's the people who make the technology of the system work 
And the people who have to do something different are in fact, you know, hello, people. So the idea that people can convince themselves that they're able to do something that they didn't think they would be able to do is a pretty powerful um, transformation to a vampire. And that's always very satisfying to me. If somebody realizes they can accomplish and do something they didn't think was possible, that always makes you feel. That's huge. I, I have to say, uh, <laughs> what you just said hits home for me. I feel like we should have called the show Confessions of a Mobile <laughs> Technologist because I feel that I've spent so much of my career focused on the technology elements. And I've always been particularly empathetic to, to the men and women on the front lines, but from a different angle, I hadn't been thinking about the anxiety and, and the change saturation that they were experiencing. I was thinking mostly about what tools are they using? What environment are they in? And, and I was thinking of just some of those more uh, kind of practical physical elements that we could drive from a design standpoint into the technology solutions that we were implementing. But through this podcast and through my experiences in, in our recent business, you know, I've come to realize that, you know, digital transformation, it's, I don't know what the percentage is, the ratio, but it's, it's certainly not 99% technology and one person human. I, I mean, it's, it's gotta be something closer to 50, 50, like you could have the best technology and, and everything could work exactly the way it was designed. But if we don't cover the, the human aspects of change, it's not going to be successful. And we're going to create a lot of stress in the organization. So your, your example right there of bringing that woman along to, to see that she didn't have to change careers uh, is a fantastic example and a great way for us to uh, wrap up the conversation today. So thank you for sharing thank that. Thank you very much. Yeah, really appreciate the conversation. I do need to wrap the show up. Uh, so thank you again for your time. Uh, for the audience, I hope you found this conversation as enjoyable as I have. And if so, please share and rate the podcast. Five-star ratings help ensure that it gets promoted to other professionals like you that are innovating on the front lines. And a reminder that this podcast is sponsored by Skillful, the mobile digital adoption platform for deskless and frontline workers. Visit our website at skillful.com. That's S-K-Y-L-L-F-U-L.com. And if you or someone else you know is out there innovating on the front lines, we'd love to hear about it. Please reach out to me on LinkedIn and share your story or make a referral and share their story. And either way, we'll see you on the next episode and we look forward to it. Roland, thanks again. 